Kia ora and welcome to Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, the podcast. In 2015, Lucretia Seals went to the High Court to seek a ruling that would allow a doctor to assist her to die with her consent. Her court case initiated a national debate and helped to focus a parliamentary inquiry into assisted dying. On Thursday the 4th of June, the Faculty of Law recorded a panel discussion on Seals versus Attorney General and the subsequent law reform. For the first time, Lucretia's counsel, the Crown's counsel and the presiding judge came together publicly to discuss their perspectives on the historic court action. The panel members gave their perspectives on the original case and the End of Life Choice Act that has led to the upcoming referendum. Ka oho te wairua, ka matāra te tinana, he aroha ki te aroha, ka kā te rama, ti he mauri ora. I tēnei wā whakamaumahara, ko te mea tika tēnei ki te mihi atu ki a rātou, ko wehi atu ki te pō. Haere, haere, hoki atu rātou ki o rātou moengarua. Ka nui hoki te mihi ki a rātou mā, ka nui hoki te mihi ki a Lucretia, me tōna whānau. Kia Matt, me ona mātua. Nā nā nei, nā rātou nei. Mātou i whakarauika, hei kōrero-rero, hei whakaro pai mō ēnei kaupapa tino nui. Nā reira, ka nui te mihi, ki ngā kaituku moni, ka nui te mihi hoki, ki ngā pui kōrero o tēnei wāe tūmai nei, nā reira e ngā kai mātakitaki ka nui te mihi hoki ki a koutou katoa. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, ki ora tātou katoa. Ka huri te wāe nai nei ki te reo o Matt Vickers. At this time, as we've paid due respect to those who've passed on, including Lucretia, and the many who have passed on in the five years since her case. It gives us great pleasure to be able to introduce to you her husband, Matt, uh, to start us off in our corridor today. Kia ora. Good evening, and welcome to the fifth annual Lucretia Seals Memorial Lecture in Law Reform. This date marks a very special occasion, as not only is this the fifth year we've conducted this event, but it's also five years to the day that Lucretia received a ruling in Seals v. Attorney General, and five years to the day that Lucretia passed away. In all senses, this is a truly memorial event. This year, the law school, and in particular Dean Mark Hickford and Professor Jeff McClay, have worked to create something very special to commemorate Lucretia's life and achievements. Tonight, We'll be revisiting the case of Seals v. Attorney General for the first time in five years. We will hear from Lucretia's counsel, the Crown's counsel, and the presiding judge, all brought together for the first time publicly since the case. As most of you know, Lucretia's decision to take this case and the way that it had captured public imagination catalyzed our legislators, and the issue of aid and dying was wrestled with by our lawmakers from then until now. Although public polling showed sizable support for aid and dying all through that period, it also faced strong opposition. Tonight, we're gonna to hear from some of the MPs who grappled with this issue as it worked its way 
through Parliament. David Seymour's End of Life Choice Act was passed into law at the end of last year, a historical and significant event, though this isn't the end of the story. We will all soon have the chance to vote on this issue in a public referendum. A society has been formed to provide access to information on the End of Life Choice Act to voters. And Jessica Young, PhD, CEO of that society, will introduce uh, that society tonight and speak about their work. It really is extraordinary to look back on everything that has happened in the last five years and to wonder what Lucretia would have made of it all. Though she was ill, Lucretia was still very communicative and forceful when she filed her statement of claim. Anyone who watches her video interviews from that time, as I did recently, will immediately notice her strength of will and her resolve. Lucretia and I were private people, and though her decision to take this case was very in keeping with her principles of justice and fairness, it was still out of character for her to put herself in the spotlight like that. It's fair to say, though, that her decision to take that case really turned our lives upside down. It was hard enough to go through the experience of watching my wife's health deteriorate, but harder still to have to listen to others, strangers really, opine on the motives and merit of Lucretia's views. A lot of folks seemed to understand, while others you wanted to grab by the shoulders and give a good shake. There were thousands of online comments and dozens of opinion pieces, and I must have read them all. Before the case, I, I kept myself from commenting because I knew we had a court case pending and that would not have been wise. But by the time the case was over, I'd come to realise that all of that content was the collective consciousness of the people of New Zealand figuring it out. And sometimes it meant that a particularly nasty thought might be voiced, but other thoughts would soon come to balance things out. And I, come, I came to understand that in aggregate, all of those comments summed up everyone's best hopes and worst fears, and that somewhere in the middle of all of that was the nation's true view on things. And when looking at things that way, it was easy to sense just how supported Lucretia was. The case itself felt very surreal. And by the time the court date was settled, Lucretia was already physically struggling and she was sleeping a lot of the day. It took all of her strength to visit the courtroom, which she attended while wheelchair bound. She sat quietly beside me, listening to the lawyers, nodding if she agreed with a point made by the counsel and smiling if they made a particularly good point or said something funny. The court had made the jury room available to Lucretia and her family. So every recess, we would gather there to take a break and grab refreshments to discuss how we thought the case was going. We bonded a lot in that room. And I still remember very clearly Lucretia, her mother, father and I driving our car out of the basement of the Wellington High Court, up the concrete ramp and past a bank of photographers and uh, film camera people eager to catch a glimpse of this woman at the centre of all that drama. And on the one hand, she could be so private and self-effacing and, and shunning of attention, but I think there was a mischief to her too, a part of her that was bemused by all that fuss. It would have been naive to think that that drive home was the end of it. And though after three days in court and after she died, 
uh, it certainly felt like it was the end of things. But she knew that her case would spark something, and I think her best hope was for a ruling that would have interpreted the law in her favour. Failing that, I think she knew that failure was a strong possibility, but she hoped to start a conversation. I don't think, however, she would have expected that Parliament would swing into action in quite the way that it did. I certainly don't think that she would have expected that we would have, have a public referendum on the issue and that the choice that she fought for would result in this significant choice for everyone. Lucretia had an impact on the world, especially on my life and the lives of her friends and family and colleagues. For the next few years, I would continue to work for her cause, not because I particularly wanted to. Personally, I would have been happy to retreat to my anonymity and to privately grieve. But I did it because I felt that it was important that while the momentum was there, that it be put to use to attempt to achieve some positive change in the world. No matter the result of the referendum, I don't think New Zealand has ever had such a sustained focus on end-of-life issues. That in itself is important, a good thing, and historic. Every day I'm thankful for having known Lucretia and for having loved her, and it may become September that her impact will still be felt further, with those in our community suffering from maternal illness, for the first time being able to have a choice about the time and manner of their passing, a choice that she sought but was denied. Personally, I hope for that outcome, and I can think of no better end to this story than one where Lucretia's choice is granted to everyone by the people of the country that she loved. Tonight, the panelists will look at the impact of Lucretia's case and how it ultimately achieved legislative change and possibly a change to end-of-life practices in New Zealand. And we'll attempt to answer many questions. Were the courts an effective vehicle for law reform? Was Lucretia right to use the courts to get what she felt she was entitled to? What impact did the media coverage have? Were there other avenues available to her? What of the parliamentary inquiry sparked by Marianne Street's petition? And what of David Seymour's members' bill? Was a referendum an inevitable outcome? Was it a desirable one? And what will be the consequences of a result if people vote yes or if they vote no? As always, I want to thank the lecture's sponsors, without whom this event would not be possible. We're incredibly grateful for their contribution. Thank you all for your generosity. On a personal note, I wish you all good health in these trying times, and I hope we will all have the opportunity to be safely back together in person for next year's event. Thank you and enjoy. Tēnā katoa, everybody. Thanks for watching what is a slightly unusual fifth Lucretia Seals Lecture in Law Reform. Tonight we are commemorating the fifth anniversary of both the decision in Seals against the Attorney General and also unfortunately Lucretia's death. And before we begin, I first want to acknowledge Lucretia, who many of the people who are going to speak in this presentation knew. I want to acknowledge Matt, who's already spoken from New York. And I want to acknowledge Lucretia's parents in particular. We know that today is a very difficult day and we wanted to acknowledge that at the beginning of our presentation. We also wanted to commemorate 
Lucretia not just as the plaintiff in seals against the Attorney General, but also someone who was very committed in her life to law reform. And tonight, we are going to look at that case of hers through a law reform lens, with reflections from a, a range of people, from the lawyers in the case, to the judge who decided the case, to a couple of MPs, and then a couple of people who are going to reflect a bit more broadly on the issues involved and the debate that surrounded her case and the law reform that resulted or may result from it. Just before I introduce our first speaker, Andrew Bartler, I just wanted to reflect for a couple of minutes on my own involvement with Lucretia. With the exception of Matt, I'm probably the first person in this presentation to have heard of Lucretia's case. I was very fortunate to work with her at the Law Commission during the time of her illness. During the entire four and a half years that I worked with her, Lucretia mentioned her illness to me twice. The first time was when she was planning a trip to South America with Matt, and she reflected that she was just well enough to be able to go and she was making as much good as she could of the circumstances by going on this trip. The second time, which was a much more awkward conversation, was she came into my office and asked for my support for the Law Commission to conduct a review into the law of assisted dying. And I said very definitely that I thought that would be a bad idea, that that was not something the Law Commission should do. And I explained my reasons as being that I thought that was something that politicians should be responsible for. Over a course of a period of time, I probably changed my views about whether the Law Commission should have done this as a law reform exercise, partly because I think it might have been able to flush out some of the issues a little bit earlier and produce perhaps a better bill when things had got to Parliament. But certainly, as I said here tonight, I remember my conversation with Lucretia, and I reflect on that conversation often as to what the best way of doing law reform is for these very difficult issues. And so as you watch this presentation, remember Lucretia, but also remember that she thought deeply about these issues too. It's my pleasure now to move to introduce our first Wellington-based speaker, Dr Andrew Butler, who was, and I think he'll say, privileged to be Lucretia's lead counsel in her case. He's going firstly just to very briefly talk to us about what Lucretia was seeking and what the result of the case was, and then he's going to move on to some more personal reflections about the case and what it was like to be involved in a piece of public interest litigation like this. So, Andrew. Kia ora, Jeff, and thanks for that kind introduction. Um, I've been asked to talk about three things tonight. One, to talk a little bit about what the point of the litigation was that Lucretia initiated. Second, to kind of talk about some reflections as a lawyer doing this type of litigation. And then third, some brief personal reflections uh, in relation to Lucretia and my involvement in the case. So the first point, what was the point of the case? In legal terms, the point of the case was to establish one of two possible alternatives. First of all, that the current law allows for medical aid in dying. That was the primary argument we wanted to advance, that while others, those who were against, felt that our current law did not allow for medical aid in dying, in fact, on a close proper interpretation of the legislation, that possibility existed. If we were wrong about that, what we wanted as a backup was a conclusion from the court 
along the following lines. The fact that the Lord did not allow for medical aid in dying was a breach of Lucretia's human rights. So there were those two alternatives that we were uh, chasing in this particular case. Standing back more broadly, of course, um, part of the point of the litigation was to draw attention to a, an issue like this. It wasn't the first time there'd been a public discussion around uh, aid in dying. Um, there'd been many discussions, attempts to introduce legislation and so on. None of those had got over the line. What was different about Lucretia's case was that unlike other cases where the story was being told through those people who had taken the law into their own hands, what she was wanting to do was to say, this is how the law affects me, and I want you to understand what the impact of the law is on me. In terms of reflections on a piece of litigation like this, I've got quite a number, and I've got them in no particular order, but I just thought, Jeff, it might be interesting to uh, touch on them. I'm not going to make any comments on the rightness or wrongness of the decision. That's not the point uh, of tonight's presentation, but rather to reflect on what one can take from litigation of this sort. The first thing I want to focus on is the importance in litigation like this of the personal commitment and determination of the person who is taking this. People who know Lucretia know how private she was. She was an intensely private person. For her to put herself out in the public eye for litigation of this sort was an incredible personal sacrifice that she had made. It was also a sacrifice that she made effectively for her family, Shirley, for Larry, Jeremy, Matt, obviously, and the wider family. She couldn't have done what she had done, this litigation couldn't have been brought if she was not prepared to be not herself, in a sense, and be prepared to put herself out there and have the support and love of the family uh, that she did. The second thing, second reflection I had on this litigation was the importance for me and the, the, the team that was doing this of support of a team. We could never have been able to run a case as big as this um, through one person. So I was the lead lawyer on behalf of uh, Lucretia in this case, but this was the work of very many hands. Matt in his book records 13 names from Russell McVeigh who were involved in the team that uh, brought this case to court. I can assure you there were many, many others. It was a huge commitment by that team. The hours involved were extraordinary and unreasonable. But because of the commitment that Lucretia was showing to trying to get her story out and put this issue before the public, that was highly motivating for the team uh, that was involved in the case. And I also have to acknowledge the support I had from the firm to be able to bring litigation of this sort. It was massive litigation and it could never have been done without the support of a large firm like uh, Russell McBain. A third thing that I took from it was the importance of evidence and experts. Um, there was something like 51 affidavits were filed in this case. Bearing in mind the case began roughly in the first couple of weeks of March and was brought for hearing in May with judgment in very early June to get 51 affidavits prepared, comprehensive dealing with almost every single issue you could imagine was extraordinary. And I want to acknowledge the uh, commitment on all sides of experts to be experts and offer their views in relation to a case like this. I'll be interested to hear from David whether he felt there was value in, in that evidence that was brought forward. But from our perspective, the importance of the evidence as a way of telling the narrative, telling the story and the impact and individualizing uh, the impact of, uh, of the law on Lucretia and people like uh, Lucretia was very important. 
And I just want to pick up that theme, the power of narrative. Litigation like this, it's critical that you've actually got a person that you can focus on through whom you can tell the story. And for those of us, for, sorry, for those people who wanted to tell a counter-narrative, to say, well, this might be Lucretia's experience, but actually there are different experiences, they correctly and understandably brought forward other stories of other people who are undergoing not dissimilar experiences and who reacted uh, to the reform that Lucretia was looking for. We said not reform, clarification. The clarification of the law that uh, Lucretia was looking for reacted in a different way, thinking that the law, uh, if it was as Lucretia wished it to be, might expose them to harms that they did not wish to, to undergo. So the power of narrative was a hugely important learning for me as a lawyer uh, in a case like this. But it was powerful not only for telling the case in the courtroom, but also just as important for telling the story outside. Going back to a theme I touched on earlier, lots of the previous discussions of aid and dying focused on people, lay people who had taken the matter into their own hands and who were telling a story of, I did this because I saw my relative suffering and this is what I did to them. Here was a, an articulate person who was actually able to say, not here's what somebody's done to me, here's what I would like to be my experience because of what I am going through. Very powerful and important, it was a really important learning for me. Another very important feature of the case, and again, David may touch on it, was the following. The level of cooperation we had from the Crown and from the court system to make sure that this case got heard in the best way it could be heard. It was extraordinary that it was able to be uh, started from woe to go in such a short amount of time. We couldn't have done it if we didn't have the court staff and the judge assisting us to get it on for hearing. There was no chance of getting it on for hearing before Lucretia passed away if we didn't have cooperation from the Crown. It was a classic example of the Crown acting as a model litigant, exactly the way you would hope the Crown would wish to litigate an important issue like this. And I said it at the time, and I want to repeat it again, how proud I was of us as a system that all of the actors in the system understood the heavy responsibility they were acting under and acted appropriately and accordingly. It was very moving uh, and powerful as a, as a professional. The last point I'd wanted to touch on was the privilege that it is uh, to be a lawyer. Privilege in several senses. One, to have somebody entrust a case to you of this sort to give you the power to tell, to tell their story. There's a huge level of trust that's involved in, in that. Um, and it's a case like that reminds you about what the privilege is uh, to be able to tell a story like that. But the second aspect of privilege I think that's important and we sometimes forget, particularly when you do public interest litigation, is the privilege of learning. The thing I love, there's many things I love, but one of the things I really love about the law is how I get to learn new things every day. New things about scenarios or people that I would never have got to experience but for the career that I chose. When I set out in the career, I had no idea that that's what law was, but I learned very quickly uh, that that actually is what law is. And it's a wonderful, uh, it's a wonderful privilege. And in, my, in this particular case, I really deeply felt the privilege in this sense. Had somebody put a microphone underneath my mouth on Lambton Key, in the lead up to the litigation and asked me what my opinion was, I'm reasonably sure that I would have been a skeptic. I would have said, not so sure about that. Doing this particular case and actually having to deeply become involved in understanding the issue, I went on a journey. And by the end of the case, I was personally persuaded of the merits of the position that uh, 
Lucretia was advancing and uh, I was committed to seeing as a result of the case, obviously, that the law was as declared by Justice Collins, um, committed to saying, well, if that is what the law is, then I'd like to see the law changed. And I really feel it is a great privilege that legal practice can give us that sometimes it can put you in a spot where you actually have to challenge your own personal views on things and learn. Um, it's a wonderful privilege, uh, being a lawyer and a privilege, um, that I will treasure for as long as I'm in this profession that we have. Lastly, I just wanted to conclude with a couple of uh, personal remarks. Lucretia, we're really sorry um, that we're here celebrating you in one sense because of the fact that you passed away, but really we're actually celebrating your life and what you contributed and how you inspired uh, people for the time that you were uh, with us. We're taking this as an opportunity to honour uh, your life contribution that you made to ref law reform in many different areas and how in your last uh, months you decided um, against a very strong part of your nature, the part of you that is private, to actually put yourself out in the public arena and say this is my last big contribution to law reform. So uh, Lucretia, it's been five years, um, it's flown by and you can look back after five years and be comforted that what you set out to do uh, is still going. And if I can very lastly just acknowledge again uh, the family uh, and the contribution they made to helping us get the litigation forward. Thanks, Jeff. Right, thanks for Andrew for giving his side of the case seals against the Attorney General. Of course, all good court cases need two sides, and we're very fortunate now to have presentations from the two lead lawyers for the Crown. Now, the Crown was arguing that the Crimes Act prohibited the provision of medical assistance to somebody who had requested it um, to die. Um, leading the Crown was Mike Heron QC, who at that time was the Solicitor General of New Zealand, the Crown's Chief Legal Advisor. And assisting him was Professor Paul Rishworth QC, who at that time, as he'll just explain, had just left the University of Auckland to take up his position at Crown Law as a senior counsel advising on human rights matters. Both Mike and Paul uh, live in Auckland and given the times in which we live, we thought it was easier for them to be able to, be, to participate through um, the miracles of Zoom, somewhat miracles of Zoom. Um, but we're very grateful they took the time to record their reflections to give a balanced perspective perhaps on seals and the Attorney General from the lawyer perspective. Tenakoto Katoa, thank you very much for having me and uh, for including me in this, uh, Andrew and Jeff. Um, I wanted to talk about three things and uh, I suspect they'll echo some of the themes that Andrew's talked about. Uh, I wanted to talk about what a privilege it was to take part in this case and to see it unfold. Uh, I wanted to talk about the people and I wanted to talk about some personal factors for me that were uh, relevant at the time, I guess. So three Ps, I wanted to talk uh, about personal factors, uh, the people and what a privilege it was. Um, and on the personal front, I suppose for me, I came into it uh, thinking, gee, this is incredibly complex. I'm glad I've got uh, 
Andrew Butler and Paul Richwood, because <laughs> uh, this is uh, this is beyond my uh, normal habitat. Although the crimes part, I felt more comfortable with. Uh, I thought as it developed, the complexity of the evidence was just wonderful. And I suppose Andrew's touched on that. You know, the ability to learn and to read this evidence from, I think, thirty-six odd witnesses and fifty-something affidavits and and I think as Justice Collins said in the judgment, you know, for every good argument, there was an equal and opposite uh, wonderful argument in response. And uh, the more you read of it, the more you just thought, wow, this is incredibly difficult and reasonable people could take uh, different sides on this. And uh, I have to say, I, I started with the view of, boy, I, I'm... I'm not comfortable with a human taking the life of another human. And I probably ended up um, in a similar position, albeit I would say uh, a much more on the fence and, uh, and open to what is what's happened. And, and I guess, you know, that's just a learning process. Um, I was so impressed with Lucretia, with Matt, with the family and walking into that courtroom with uh, the jury box full and Lucretia walking in uh, when she could. That was incredible. Um, amazing feeling, amazing uh, to be there. So what a privilege that was. Uh, it was, it just happened to coincide with quite a stressful time for me and uh, I think it was exactly the same time that John Banks was suggesting that I should resign. And I remember leaving one of the interlocutory hearings and, and going across the beehive and up to see someone, Minister Adams, Collins, the attorney, I'm not sure. But uh, anyway, and them saying, boy, yeah, it's not a good day for you. <laughs> and it was sort of, uh, yeah, I mean, that's typical of the Solicitor General role. Um, there's always, you know, hundred things going on that are stressful, but that was stressful. Um, so I was so grateful to have such a, a great team, which moves into the um, the people part. And um, we all know that wonderful saying, heiaha te mea nui o te ao, hei tangata, hei tangata, hei tangata. And the more you, you journey through life, um, uh, you realise, boy, that is it. The people are everything. And uh, Paul Kalanithi, when he wrote that lovely, um, you know, he's a guy who died of cancer and he was a neurosurgeon, incredible guy. And he wrote, when breath becomes air. And essentially his thesis was that really the meaning of life was about the connections you make with people. And, um, you know, just to name a few, I mean, Andrew and the Russell McVeigh team, uh, Chris Curran and others, Catherine Marks, and what, what, you know, what a great team. I, I just thought that was fabulous. The Crown Law team, Paul, I can't stress enough, you know, thank the Lord you were there. Erica, Yasmin and others. Uh, and then, of course, Justice Collins. I mean, you couldn't ask for a better judge. And probably that's the reason why it never went on appeal in part. I mean, he just covered the basis. I'm sure there were other reasons, but what a brilliant uh, handling of such a difficult case. So I echo um, Andrew's comments on that. 
And, and the privilege point, Andrew's, you know, I mean, how lucky are we to be able to stand up there and talk about stuff that's so fascinating and debate it and listen to intelligent arguments otherwise and actually have some influence on that process was, or just be involved. I mean, man, I, I still look back and that was one of the absolute highlights, but probably, you know, one of the most draining. I mean, losing in the Privy Council, that's something, you know, getting told you should resign by a serving minister, that's another thing. But this one was, yeah, this was pretty pretty amazing and um, you know one of the interesting things I reflected on was that how what a what an interest ministers took in this and the Prime Minister in particular um, John Key as you know was Prime Minister at the time he rang me uh, on at least two occasions to discuss the case um, immediately after it he rang and was just really interested I'm sure he won't mind me saying that um, his view at the time was clearly in favour of um, assisted dying of some sort of euthanasia, and yet he was perfectly comfortable with the exercise and wasn't trying to influence us at all, nor was the attorney, who you would imagine, like many things, had strong views. So, uh, but they were, and that, that contributed to the way in which we could participate in the case. So, you know, again, we felt really privileged, I do, and I, I certainly thank my team and Russ McVeigh and the uh, judge for allowing all of that to happen. Um, probably that's it for me. Thank you very much, Jeff, and others. Well, thank you very much, Jeff, for this invitation to join in this symposium today. First thing I should say is that I'm aware it'll be an especially sad time for Lucretia's family and for Matt, and so uh, my thoughts will be with them. The case was obviously an important one, and for me personally, it was, as for others, a tremendous privilege to be involved. I recall I just started at Crown Law just a matter of a few weeks before the case uh, arose, having been a full-time legal academic for 28 years. And it was exactly the sort of case that I was keen to be involved in. It was a great deal of work over a short period with lots of early morning and late night phone calls to witnesses in different parts of the world. It was great to work with Mike Heron, who'd hired me to Crown Law. And I must say that we owe great debts to our two juniors, I should just say two juniors, uh, our lawyers, Erica Devine and Yasmin Moenfar. But in my reflections today about the case, I wanted to draw back and consider the case in its international context. And I wanted to ask the broad question about assisted suicide and euthanasia, and it's this, is it for courts or is it for parliament? And you'll recall that it was very much part of the Seals case, that uh, the, the, the judgment of Justice Collins in the Seals case, that the complex legal, moral and philosophical and clinical issues can only be addressed by Parliament amending the Crimes Act. So the case itself is a very clear choice for Parliament being the forum on a matter such as this. But it seems to me that looking back in hindsight and putting the case in a sort of global context, that that period of 2014, late 2014, early 2015, was a sort of an apogee, a sort of a bit of a, a mini wave of court-based advocacy 
for assisted suicide and euthanasia. And it's a wave that I think began to pass sometime after the Seals case. So I just wanted to describe that, uh, that sort of mini wave as I describe it that was happening. People will know that a few countries around the world and states within countries have regimes that authorize assisted suicide and in some cases euthanasia. And in the main, they're brought about by legislation, but there have been quite a lot of court challenges as well. And, uh, and, and so it's those that I'm particularly interested in. Back at the time of SEALs, there'd been a New Mexico case called Brandenburg and Morris in which the trial court there had held that the, the right in the New Mexico constitution to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness contained a right to assisted suicide. There was also the Nicholson case from 2014 in the UK Supreme Court, where two of the seven law lords would have declared the UK law against assisted suicide incompatible with the European Convention, and the other five divided uh, amongst those who thought that a court ought never to make such a declaration on this issue, and others who thought that maybe courts should, but that Parliament should be given the opportunity to consider it first. Then there was Strancham Ford, a somewhat unusual case from South Africa, which was decided, I think from memory, about two weeks before the Seals case began, in which a South African judge gave a very vigorous judgment in favor of assisted suicide and made what he termed to be a sort of common law exemption for Mr. Strancham Ford, so that the giving him assistance would not constitute a criminal offense under the law of South Africa. But mostly there was the Carter case in 2015 in January, in which the Supreme Court of Canada held that right to life, liberty and security of the person was infringed by the Canadian Criminal Code prohibition on assisted suicide, and also the prohibition on consent to death being possible. Now, that case had come out the day I was leaving Canada, having taught a course there in Ontario to, to commence at Crown Law. So it was very much uppermost in my mind, especially as in New Zealand, there was talk of declarations of inconsistency. Could we have the same sort of case here? So it was interesting that within a matter of uh, a few weeks, we did in fact have the case. But I just wanted to look at what happened after the Seals case internationally. I mean, we know the result of the Seals case here, but just look internationally. That New Mexico case, Brandenburg and Morris, was overturned by the New Mexico Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court uh, as wrongly decided. The Strancham Ford case from South Africa was vigorously overturned by the Court of Appeal there as being wrong on many levels. For its part, the UK Supreme Court did have the opportunity to consider euthanasia and assisted suicide again, and that was in a case called Conway in 2018. And people who were observing that case might well have thought that given that Parliament had by that stage considered euthanasia laws and rejected them, that the UK Supreme Court might say, well, this is the time in which it would be right for the court to make some sort of judgment. Uh, but it didn't. It refused leave to appeal in that case. And so it seemed to me that the time had uh, sort of passed in which the courts were looked at as the opportunity or the place where action was to be um, uh, taken um, against euthanasia. For me, I think the legislative option is the right one because ultimately it's not, it's not a legal question. The thing is though, that it becomes one 
when the absence of euthanasia or assisted suicide can be presented as a breach of some right that is in a Bill of Rights. Only Canada and New Zealand have proceeded on the basis that a right to life is at stake in these cases. The other cases have generally addressed the question in terms of the right to liberty or the right to a private life, which means the right to make deep personal decisions, in that case, whether to choose to end your life. But only Canada, Canada and New Zealand have proceeded on the basis that a right to life is involved because a person in the position of Lucretia might feel that they should take their own life earlier than they would if they had the option of assisted suicide at a later stage. So only uh, in, in our law in Canada's Charter of Rights do we have this provision that the right to life can be taken away so long as the law is consistent with fundamental justice. But in Canada in recent years, the idea of fundamental justice has become synonymous with the idea that a law impairing life or liberty should not be vague or arbitrary or overbroad. Now, it was overbreadth that decided Carter, but in deciding whether a law is overbroad, everything turns on what the correct breadth of the law ought to have been in the first place. And the key moment in the Carter case was the court's conclusion that the criminal law prohibiting assisted suicide was to protect the vulnerable. And that implied a class of the non-vulnerable who ought to be able to get assistance without constraint by criminal law. Therefore, the, uh, the law was overbroad. Now, that, that Carter logic was not accepted by Justice Collins, who found evidence in our own Crimes Act that the intention was to prohibit suicides generally and not just those of the vulnerable. And that evidence lay in section 41, which justifies a person in intervening to prevent a suicide without pausing to inquire whether it is uh, a suicide of the type that a terminally ill patient might be making for rational reasons or an irrational suicide. Now, I think that was the right decision uh, by Justice Collins, but I suspect that in Canada, the Supreme Court would simply have added section 41 to the list of sections that they struck down. So, uh, in, to my mind, that was the pivotal moment in the, uh, in the, um, the Seals case. And I think that Justice Collins' instincts were right. I think what it comes down to is what is the assisted suicide prohibition actually for? Does it reflect a desire to protect the vulnerable? And therefore, is there an implicit concession that there are non-vulnerable people out there who ought not to be prevented? In which case, there's a legislative scheme required to sort out the vulnerable and the non-vulnerable. But what is that idea of vulnerability? And I'll just finish with a reflection on um, what the Nicholson case had said, at least one of the judges there who expressed his doubts that it really was a question for courts. He said, there is this, the mere impossibility of distinguishing between those who have spontaneously formed the desire to kill themselves and those who have done so in response to real or imagined pressure arising from the impact of their disabilities on other people and covert social pressures. That's the near impossibility of distinguishing. And to that, I would add the difficulty in devising a scheme of oversights and checks that would be able to make that inquiry, one that the pressured or the people suffering from covert social pressures couldn't in fact navigate through and present themselves as persons who are happily uh, or, or, or willingly consenting. Now, it seems to me that that sort of choice, whether there is uh, that choice to be made is one that ought to be made by parliament because it's not really a question of law. 
So I conclude that Justice Collins' instincts were right, and that uh, apart from that brief period in 2014 and 2015, when there was a lot of action in the courts, that what's most likely happening now is that the sorts of issue, the sort of issue, will be looked at by parliaments around the world. So with that, I'll um, hand back to you, Jeff. So having heard from the lawyers in Seals and the Attorney General, we're very lucky and fortunate to be able to hear from the trial judge in the case, Justice Collins. Um, just to introduce Justice Collins, he's actually someone who doesn't need to be welcomed to this law school. He's an old colleague of ours. For many years, he taught medical law at the law school, amongst other subjects. Um, and he was a common visitor to our, our common room and still is in many events. But we're very fortunate that David's agreed to give his reflections on, on the case. It's somewhat unusual for a judge to reflect in our tradition on a case that he's sat on, um, but we're very lucky that he's taken this opportunity after five years to maybe reflect a bit on his experiences of SEALs and the Attorney General. So, David. Thank you very much, Jeff. Um, like others who have presented, I would like to acknowledge the fact that it is now five years since uh, Lucretia passed away, and th these days will be tinged with sadness for Matt, uh, for Lucretia's family, and for her friends. Uh, Lucretia was an extraordinary young woman who had a great contribution to still make to law reform uh, before her life was cut uh, so unreasonably short. And the fact that she had the courage and the humility to devote the last weeks of her life to pursuing uh, this cause that she so firmly believed in reflects remarkably upon her integrity and her uh, courage as a person. And when the case finished and I left with the burden of having to decide very quickly uh, what the outcome would be, I was quite determined that the decision would be uh, delivered before Lucretia passed away because that was the best way in which I could honour her courage. A number of people have questioned whether or not the courts were the appropriate forum for the issues that Lucretia's case raised. And uh, from my perspective, I think the court was the appropriate place uh, for two reasons. Um, first, Lucretia's case provided an opportunity for the law to be clarified. And I think that was quite important in this particular case because there were a number of commentators who were making statements about what the criminal law provisions of New Zealand meant. And uh, ultimately, um, it was my responsibility to decide if some of those statements were correct, and I decided that they weren't. And so, so far as clarifying the law was concerned, it was extremely important that Lucretia provided the forum for that to be done. More importantly, Lucretia's case provided the opportunity for society as a whole to reflect upon the very complex philo philosophical, moral, uh, clinical and legal issues that her case raised. And from that debate, the opportunity arose for Parliament to get control of the matter. And it was because of Lucretia's determination to have the issues raised in the way that she did that I'm sure Parliament picked up the challenge that was placed back before them. There had been three previous private members' bills that had tried to pursue 
the types of issues that Lucretia wished to uh, have determined, and none of them gained traction. And the fact that Mr Seymour's bill did gain traction, I think, reflects very uh, favourably on Lucretia and the legal team that uh, supported her so professionally throughout the entire process. I'd like to draw a comparison between what happened in Lucretia's case and a similar case in South Africa that was decided just a few weeks before Lucretia's case came before the High Court. Uh, in that uh, case in South Africa, the High Court of South Africa was asked by a lawyer who was uh, terminally ill with cancer to issue declarations that his doctor could uh, either terminate his life or provide him with the facilities to do so. The case was heard under extreme urgency and the day after the case was argued, the plaintiff passed away. Unfortunately, nobody bothered to tell the judge of this very crucial fact and the judge then uh, proceeded to issue the orders that had been sought and then five days later issued his reasons for his decision. Uh, that case went on appeal to the uh, Supreme Court of Appeal of South Africa, and 18 months later, the Supreme Court of uh, the Court of Appeal of South Africa issued a very powerful judgment, which was highly critical of the uh, way in which the case had been argued in the first instance. And I think one of the reasons why the same criticisms were ultimately never able to be levelled against the way in which the Cretius case was argued was because of the uh, ultimate professionalism of all who were associated with the case. Uh, the Supreme Court of Appeal of South Africa commented very favourably on what happened in the Cretius case. It made quite powerful criticisms about what happened in the first instance court in South Africa and drew the comparisons between what had happened in New Zealand and what had happened in South Africa. The reasons why uh, the New Zealand case was able to be presented in such a professional way was because of the calibre of the lawyers on all sides. Uh, Andrew Butler and Chris Curran, who led the uh, team for Lucretia, did an extraordinary job in marshalling a huge volume of evidence at very short notice uh, and, and did so in a way which made my task so much easier. Mike Heron QC and Paul Rishworth QC led the Crown team and they responded with great dignity and professionalism. And there were three interveners, uh, all of whom were represented by QCs, and all of whom made also a wonderful contribution to the hearing. In fact, uh, I reflected at the time that almost all of New Zealand's leading uh, public law specialists were involved as counsel in Lucretia's case. And the way in which the lawyers, all of the lawyers, uh, discharged their responsibilities made my task so much easier. And the final point I'd like to uh, end on is to thank the sponsors of this lecture series. Uh, it's incredibly important that issues of the kind that Lucretia's case raise are able to be debated and discussed in a forum uh, such as this, where regardless of one's personal views, uh, the issues are able to be uh, traversed with sensitivity and dignity. Thank you. So that's a review of what some of the key participants in the court case thought about Lucretia's case. 
Now we're very privileged to be able to welcome two MPs who were involved in the passage of the End of Life Choices Act to talk about their reflections on the parliamentary process and the law reform that Lucretia hoped that she had set in motion through her case. So I'd like to welcome Chris Bishop, who is the National Party MP for Hutt South, and Greg O'Connor, the Labour Party MP for Oharihu, to have a chat amongst themselves um, about their experiences of the parliamentary process. Well, thanks very much, Jeff, and it's uh, a real pleasure to be here uh, for the uh, for this lecture. Um, look, I, I've been reflecting in the last few uh, weeks and months on the passage of the End of Life Choice Act, and um, you know, it's hard to believe um, it's an act, to be honest, because for a long time it didn't feel like it was actually uh, going to get there. And in some ways, I, I kind of regard it as a minor miracle that the act got passed uh, in the end. Um, I don't think it would have happened if it weren't for a few things. The first is uh, just uh, Lucretia herself, who, uh, as, as Dr Butler uh, said, uh, very selflessly uh, put it into the court system and then uh, that you know, made its way into the public consciousness, obviously. And um, it was, I suppose, a necessary precondition for the reform efforts uh, to, to be advanced. Uh, and then, of course, the court case itself uh, was extremely important in throwing the ball back into Parliament's court, really, making it clear that the law would not provide reform uh, in and of itself, that Parliament had to uh, do that itself. Uh, and it took uh, David Seymour to uh, put the private members' bill into the ballot. Uh, and then, uh, as, as Dr Butler has noted, the very important legal work done by himself and others uh, pro bono from Russell McVeigh was extremely important in providing the ballast uh, and the solidity behind some of the legal arguments and previous law reform efforts um, in the past, 2003 and 1995, have founded um, for lots of different reasons but one reason was the um, imperfect nature of the drafting of the members bill that went up in the first place and this wasn't a perfect bill by any stretch at first reading but it was substantially better than uh, ones that had gone uh, before. So we turned to the select committee process. Greg, I don't know, you, 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 we, we had a, it was a robust process, wasn't it? Well, the select committee process was interesting because, of course, at the first reading, we all voted for it. That's right. Everyone who was on the Justice Committee at that time. Um, it was something of a baptism of fire for me. I was brand new MP. Um, and when I found out that it was going to go to the Justice Committee, it was good because I was one of these MPs that really envied the, those um, on the polar opposites. I envied the, those who believed fervently it was wrong, those fervently who believed it was right. And here was I stuck in the middle. Um, and I voted for it because I knew I was going to be on the select committee. That also, probably to be fair, mm. bought me some time against those from either side who were um, lobbying hard mm. to say, well, let's see what comes out of select committee. And then we got to the mm. select committee and that, what looked like it would be a pure, I suppose, search for the facts, mm. changed a little when mm. the composition of the select committee changed mm. um, and two particularly uh, strongly opinionated individuals were brought in mm. on the 
well, on the national side. Yes, that's right. Um, Maggie Barry and Nick Smith, who both, you know, very much um, were opposed to the bill. Mm. And that led to probably some of the comments you made about the imperfect select committee process. Mm. Um, again, I tended, as I do, to sit back and watch it unfold mm. and didn't have a look. But, but looking back on it, um, we probably saw far too many submitters mm. um, because at the end of the day, it was a lot of form submission and good New Zealanders all got to have their mm. say. But I think in the process, ensuring that a submitter added something new mm. is pretty important. Mm. And I think uh, on reflection, I think that subsequently happened with the abortion is that there was, they didn't hear all, my understanding mm. of it, they didn't hear all the submitters. Yeah, there's a, there's a tension. So for those watching, uh, I mean, how, we, how many submissions did we get? 38,000 or something? Oh, 38,000. We, something we, like we, that. we heard 4,000. Yeah, yeah. We, we heard, it was the most number of submissions any committee's ever heard, mm. ever received. Mm. Um, a lot of them were form submissions, but a lot of them were substantive. And we made a decision pretty early on um, that the committee would try and hear from as many people as possible, and you know possibly that was a mistake. And we also decided we would go out to different parts of the country and um, make it as easy as possible. And you know again, best of intentions, but it did take a lot of time. I mean, you know, I found myself in, in Whanganui and Palmerston North and Napier. I mean, you went to the west coast, didn't you? Dunedin. I don't think we got there. You didn't go to the west coast. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, we, we were off to the four winds of New Zealand, but it, it did take up a lot of time, and we were a very busy committee as well, that's the other thing, is that it wasn't just, we weren't just considering the end of life choice bill as it then was, although it felt like we, uh, that was the bulk of our time, but we had the inquiry into the general election uh, underway, both the local body from 2016 and then the 2017 general election, very important work, usually which uh, leads to a reform bill, which subsequently has done. Uh, what else do we have on? We had all sorts of other things on as well. Yes. But, but going back to the Select Committee, again, real privilege to be part of it because I don't think I could have really made the informed decision I did at the yeah. end and felt part of the process. You can't unless you're on it. Yeah. Um, and that's, I suppose, if this discussion is about the Select Committee process, I, I know that many of my colleagues on both sides of the House really came to it. I know they hadn't been to any submissions. Mm. They really, and you're very busy, unless you've mm. actually got time to sit down and mm. read specifically mm. a lot of the submissions, and you, you just don't. And therefore, there was no opportunity to change their minds. Mm. Um, and as someone who sort of fluctuated through mm. in the end, I mean, I know my starting point was having had a son who I had had to physically remove a um, respiratory device from. Um, with the expectation that he would die, and he didn't. Mm. I felt like I was really, um, I belonged in the discussion. Mm. Um, I sort of had that um, discussion, but also being new, I, th I think it was the, the, the fault of it was that we who went there and were making the decisions, we really, at the end of the day, our vote wasn't worth any more than anyone else's. You found it frustrating, and I did too, actually, because there was there was two different views of the role of the committee on the committee. Uh, one view was we were there to examine the evidence, hear the submissions and recommend some amendments to the bill and send it back to the House for further consideration. The other view was that because it was a moral or a conscience issue, um, the committee's role was to uh, essentially hear all the evidence, put the arguments either side, put that into a report, send it back to the House to, you know, do with it what it, what it will and only make minor technical amendments and in the end, um, that's where the committee uh, landed and people watching will have their own views about that. Uh, 
I think it was an imperfect process. It's not the way other conscience bills have been treated. And I think um, also, Chris, I'd forgotten that one of the other things, we didn't actually then do what the committee had done. Mm. Having sat through all that, remember, we weren't actually yeah. allowed to debate the important aspects of the bill. And really, our um, report back mm. only dealt with the minor and consequential parts of the bill. To feel and like a, a so, year of our lives so, so here, passed us by. But. In fact, I've, forgotten, I've only been brought into this, but I'd forgotten now how angry I was at the time. Yeah, you were pretty angry. I, I was. But, but here we'd spent an hour, uh, sorry, a, a year going around the countryside and had become informed and we and, and basically Maggie Barry and Nick Smith wouldn't allow us to debate and I think I, I, I name names because I think it's an important part of history. We weren't allowed to debate those really mm. essential parts, minor and consequential. And I tell you what, it, it, it did colour me. Um, didn't colour my final outcome, but it's certainly the process. And that's if we're talking about the process. Yes, I think people probably should reflect on that. Mm. And here we were having had all New Zealanders had the opportunity to have a say, and yet their views mm. essentially did not go into the report back of the bill. Yeah, and that's why I say it's sort of a minor miracle the bill became law, because we had this very flawed uh, select mm. committee process, very thorough in a number of respects, but quite a flawed mm. uh, process. And so the bill that came back to the House was largely unamended, mm. basically. True, you're right. And it required a um, the sponsor of the bill, David Seymour, to essentially produce a version of a you know, deep up, well, it wasn't a deep up mental yeah. report, but it was basically a series of amendments that he'd proposed that he wanted the House to consider. And those amendments had been quite carefully worked out in order to uh, procure the most number of votes on the floor of the House. Uh, and there was a group of us working with him to, uh, behind mm. the scenes, which we don't need to go into, to try and make that happen. Uh, and, you know, the, the most obvious one was the limitation that the threshold to be eligible. Um, uh, which which he which we which he had to advance through the committee of the yeah. whole house stage, and so the whole way through from the report back onwards was this um, convoluted and tortured process to try and assemble a majority the whole way, uh, and then of course you had the other issue to do with the referendum, uh, which was required to get the New Zealand First <laughs> votes on board, which uh, ended up happening in the end, mm. uh, and now now it's an act. As a study. Um, certainly as a newcomer, I, I learnt so much about the parliamentary process. Um, and if I ever am in a um, situation to take a, an equally or even somewhat controversially bill, yeah. you know, I'd feel slightly better equipped. Um, and I, I, you know, it really did test our democracy yeah. at every level. Uh, I mean, again, a, a, a great study. I mean, if I get turfed out in the election, maybe I'll write a Lord Journal article about it. But even now, it's interesting having this chat. So much of I'd forgotten about it. Yeah. And now I've, I've um, processed. But look, I mean, to me, funny a law reforming, and I know it's about law. Reform, I didn't ever think about it, the law reforming process. And I suppose if I don't know about um, people you spoke to, but no one ever really did. It was a straight, I suppose, moral. Would you say what would be the um, well, conscience is really a moral issue, and that was yeah. Well, if you look at, I went back and looked at the marriage equality legislation of 2013 and Lewis of Wall's name, and that mm. uh, was sent to the government administration committee, and mm. you know, very controversial. They had thousands of submissions as well, but that committee just worked in good faith, and mm. they made. I mean, it was actually a pretty simple piece mm. of legislation, actually, to be honest. But you know, they made some amendments mm. and sent it back to the house. It was passed on a. Um, you know, 70, uh, 50, whatever it was, um, from that point on. Uh, and, you know, it, it's a shame, I think, that we didn't follow that, that model. Um, but, you know, the abortion legislation, which we, the House has just considered, that went to a special select committee. Mm. And I wonder if, in retrospect, it would not have been better to, to try and set one up 
for this legislation. Uh, people who were, you have for and against on either side, uh, people who can dedicate their select committee time uh, to the legislation, so, you know, so no, nothing else gets neglected um, and uh, you, you sort of go from there. Interesting, I was originally going to be one of the representatives on there and I wasn't in the end. The abortion one. The abortion one. Right. And that was going to be another year of my life, another year of my life. Um, but, you know, and then when I wasn't on it, I felt, given the debate we'd had around end of life, that I was subsequently um, really less qualified, if you like, um, mm. to be making my decisions around that. And I might say, I did, being a good Catholic lad from the West Coast, I was torn um, <laughs> equally. Um, but because I'd done what I absolutely believed was right yeah. at the end of mm. the end of life. Um, I felt empowered to do the same thing mm. around, you know, ultimately, um, the abortion. Mm. Well said. Uh, well, that, that's us, I suppose. I mean, I, as I say, just to round things off, it was imperfect. We got there in the end. Um, I think there's some reflections and lessons that um, I think probably both Greg and I would take away and probably all lawmakers for... Uh, if this ever comes around again, but they don't come around very often. Um, bills like this and momentous, momentous and historic mm. bills like this. And likewise, the brand new MP, um, if you can get yourself onto a bill like that, you'll <laughs> learn more in a year than probably some would learn in 10 years in this place. So, um, and I think, well, I know we got the right result. Right, thanks to the MPs for that really fascinating insight into their experiences with the, the bill and now the Act. What I wanted to do was to close with a reflection, firstly from my colleague Marmory Stevens, who will, who will speak in a second, and secondly from Jessica Young from the Euthanasia Education Trust. But I just want to introduce my, my friend and colleague Marmory Stevens, who, in my view, wrote some of the smartest, most insightful comments on Lucretia's case and on some of the law reform that followed. Both Marmory and I shared the experience of having very close relatives die during the same period and we had our reflections I think of the case a little bit shaped by what was happening in our own personal lives at the time but rather than putting words in her mouth Marmory is far too eloquent so let's just go to Marmory. Kia ora Jeff. Uh, ka nui te mihi kia tata katoa ai mā takitaki mai ana. First of all my acknowledgement has to go to uh, the whānau of Lucretia and Matt uh, and their friends and family, uh, and particularly to Lucretia's extraordinary work. It's an honour to be part of this uh, proceeding. Uh, having been a watcher from afar, really, my connection to the case really came through my experience of my mother dying uh, within, I think, about five days of when Lucretia died, maybe ten days. And... My, the process of watching somebody I loved so much um, with end-stage uh, lung cancer and watching her over the period of many kind of weeks and months uh, become something that she had always hoped in life that she would never become, which was a dependent person a person who is no longer autonomous, a person who no longer had the choice of what she would eat, whether she could smoke, whether she could drink. All those little choices of her life had gradually been taken away from her. 
And I had been raised by my mother, by herself, and I remember many occasions where she would say to me, if I can't have a drink or a smoke, what is the point? You may as well just pull the plug. And so that was something that I remember greatly from my childhood and my young kind of adulthood. And uh, when we cleaned out her house after she passed away, I came across a whole sheaf or maybe 20 or 30 newsletters from the End of Life Choice Association. And I know how deeply pleased she would have been and how deeply proud she would have been to have seen this uh, End of Life Choice Act come into being. And yet my experience of watching those last stages of her life uh, I couldn't help but want to defend the small life that she now had and wanting to defend um, the dependent person, the person that we have become somehow in our modern society so afraid of, the person who is utterly dependent. And I found myself wanting to defend that life. And so I did some writing around that at the time of, um, just after my mother's death actually. And so, listening to our earlier speakers, and particularly uh, something that Andrew said really uh, struck me um, about the power of stories. Because when I was watching my mother's life come to its end, and I was hearing about Lucretia's life coming to its end, and I was engaged in a whole lot of discussion with other people about uh, the importance of their individual experiences with the end of life. Um, I always raised a question for me as to whether good law could come from the battle of stories. Um, but quite accurately what, uh, what Andrew pointed out is just how powerful those stories are. And so when I sit here tonight, actually what I'm feeling is a lot of sadness. Sadness because um, it reminds me of my mother but also sadness, uh, sadness for Lucretia's whānau, of course, but also sadness um, for the many, many stories that were heard over the course of the passage of this Act, uh, over the course of the case. And also some sadness too for the stories that haven't yet been told and some wondering about when some of those stories might be told and uh, how much more improvement there needs to be and how we live a good life in this land uh, alongside the question of how we die a good death. What also strikes me is that there were two major narratives that I seem to see uh, in all of the debates and the, the narratives or the point of tension, if you like, was between the power of the individual to freely choose, the power of the autonomous individual. And that is the narrative that's in ascendance now. That's the, that's the, the powerful story that so many New Zealanders uh, have latched onto, and understandably so. There is another story, which is the, the story of the dependent life. Those of us who have a religious faith, for example, are familiar with the notion that we are we exist because, because of the divine. So our life and our death are dependent on whatever we conceive to be the divine. 
So part of my sadness, if you like, is a sense of the gulf between the people who hold to those views of human life. There's a lot of us that fall into those two different camps and some that kind of vacillate between the two camps. So the boundaries are porous. Uh, but I, do, I did get a sense of a gulf between, between peoples and peoples who held on to those different accounts of human existence. And so, um, uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm conscious of that and I'm conscious of how that shapes the national discourse as well. And just another reason for sadness, which is my overriding, it's not a, it's not a, it's a, it's not a, uh, it's, I guess it's a bit of sweetness, if you like, um, because on the one hand I recognise and I applaud the wonderful work that's been done, but on the other hand I am left thinking about these stories, and I wonder also in the wake of COVID-19, not that it's over yet, but there are many more stories to come out about this, about people who have had to pass away on their own without comfort. Um, there are also many stories that have come out too about how under-resourced we are in New Zealand as far as hospice care is concerned. Uh, one of the things that came out uh, in the debates um, surrounding the passage of this Act was also how, how there are big gaps between what our palliative care is capable of and the people that our palliative care systems are supposed to reach. And so some research from about 10 or 12 years ago, uh, Kia Ngāwari, uh, who, who found that Pacifica people and Māori people were far less likely than others to be able to access good palliative care uh, and to be able to die in the way that they wanted to be able to die in comfort or at least uh, with comfort. And so... These are the things that are left with me, are the questions. How do we go forth in our society today with the lack of resources that we have and ensure that our lives are also lived well and that we are able to do justice to living our lives as well as to dying good deaths? So those are the questions that I'm left with and that kind of explains some of the sadness that I feel at the moment but tempered with admiration and with, um, with gratefulness for the, for the quality of the corridor that we've had here today. Kia ora. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. My name is Jessica Young and I'm the Executive Director of the 2020 End of Life Choice Act Referendum Society. It's an honour to appear alongside such a respected list of speakers. Thank you to the organisers for the opportunity to speak to you briefly about the End of Life Choice Act Referendum Society, and in particular to Matt Vickers and the Seals family for their support. The primary aim of the society is to advance education of the public by providing high quality, trustworthy, evidence-based information on the End of Life Choice Act in the lead up to this year's referendum. You will be well aware that New Zealanders will be asked to vote on the following question. Do you support the End of Life Choice Act 2019 coming into force? We have assembled an esteemed board chaired by Dame Jenny Gibbs with Dame Iritana Tafifirangi, Dr Libby Smales, Professor Colin Gavigan, the Honourable Marion Street, Sue Wood and Reverend Craig Kilgour. Our collective expertise spans medical, legal, political, research, Māori and religious perspectives. 
Many sponsors of the lecture, including Lucretia's family, are the founders of the 2020 End of Life Choice Act Referendum Society. So it feels particularly fitting to acknowledge Lucretia's extraordinary contribution to advancing the issue of assisted dying in New Zealand with Seals versus Attorney General by officially launching the society here this evening. What I've learned about Lucretia is that she was a rational campaigner and as a law reformer loved evidence-based policy. The End of Life Choice Act has been through several iterations in parliamentary and public processes to refine the many clauses and to ensure it is a safe piece of legislation. The Act is about how we treat the terminally ill. It's about what choices and control we have available to us when we find ourselves with limited options. New Zealand is fortunate to have people like Lucretia who is willing to stick her head above the parapet to advocate on behalf of people with life-limiting illnesses. In fact, Lucretia was a major part of the inspiration for my PhD research into the perspectives of people with approximately one year's life expectancy who would have considered assisted dying if it were available to them. Apart from Lucretia, the views of the terminally ill on assisted dying were largely missing from the debate and surprisingly had never been the subject of research in New Zealand. So on the anniversary of Lucretia's death, our society will begin our mahi to educate the public. We will do this in two ways. First, we will share information about the End of Life Choice Act. How will it work? Who is eligible? And what are the safeguards? These will come in a variety of formats, with the priority being to create easily digestible information to explain the legislation. Second, we will share stories of people like Lucretia who are facing the end of life and who would like control and choice in the face of a terminal illness and irremediable suffering. Individuals, families and communities are affected by the current legislative gap. We will represent their views alongside the voices of dying people. If you would like to find out more, there are three ways you can get involved. You can visit our soon-to-be-launched website to learn more about our work. You can share your views and experiences of the end of life on our website, and you can follow our social media accounts. On the 19th of September, we as New Zealanders have an important decision to make. Your vote is of great magnitude for our loved ones, and potentially one day for us. We must decide if dying people can be trusted to make decisions about the end of their lives. Whatever your view on assisted dying law reform, one thing is certain, we want everyone to make an informed choice when voting on this historic issue. Thank you. So that's the end of the presentations in our commemoration of both Lucretia's case and of Lucretia's five-year anniversary. We hope that you've enjoyed and been challenged by what you've heard, and we hope that Lucretia would be proud of the koro that has been presented here in her honour. If I might, and since I'm the chair of this, I can end with a couple of observations of my own. The first is perhaps the most interesting thing from my hat as a former law commissioner, someone committed to the study of law reform, is how the, the parliamentarians did not describe this as a matter of law reform. They described it as a matter of moral decision, right or wrong. Whereas my interest sitting in a law school has always been on the much more technical sides, what the MPs referred to somewhat derisory as the consequential matters. The second thing, to get back to my original conversation with Lucretia, which lives with me always, is this a matter for 
law reform or moral decision or political will. And I think they've had a whole range of presentations which have shown different aspects of what this is and how we might go as a society to deal with difficult issues like this. From my own perspective as a lawyer and a law professor and as a former law commissioner, perhaps I might just put a flag up for the role of law reform here, which is the title, I suppose, of Lucretia's lecture series. So good law reform is not about the law reformer. Really, my opinion about the stuff that I've reformed or been involved with is not really that relevant. My view of my job as a law commissioner and my job as a law professor is not to expound my own view about what the law should be. It was to create law that New Zealanders could live with and live by. Do I regret perhaps not answering in the affirmative when Lucretia asked me? Perhaps if we had answered in the affirmative a bit earlier, we might have got a reference at the Law Commission. But ultimately, I think some of the last five years has shown some of my reservations as well, that there is a time which technical law reform can't help, and it's a time for politicians to debate and to resolve these issues. Interestingly enough, Matt called his book Lucretia's Choice. Of course, now, at the end of it all, it will be our choice in September. I still can say now that I have no idea how I will vote in September on this referendum. What I hope I will do, and what I hope many of you will do, is reflect on the conversations we've had tonight and other wisdom from your friends, your whanau, but to make sure that you vote, because that's ultimately what Lucretia wanted, was that we should all have a choice. And the last thing, just the other practical thing we can do, and I'm sure Lucretia would say this as much as everybody else, regardless of your views on this issue, please give some money or some help or some aid to the hospice care, which at the, this time in New Zealand is very much reliant on our support. So vote, support, be kind, be good, and thanks for watching our presentation. To stay up to date with our latest podcasts, subscribe using your preferred podcast provider. Thank you to Te Koki School of Music alumni Stefan Patton and Kenyon Shanky for the use of their music. From Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, Haere rā.